Good morning again. Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 4. Our sermon text for this morning will be John 4, verses 1 through 18. Before we read that together, let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you again uh, for your love, the depth of the love of Jesus. Uh, we, we truly, truly cannot fathom uh, the depth of his love that he would come into this world, that he would bear sin, that he would experience uh, your wrath for us. Uh, Father, help us to get a glimpse of that love this morning as we look into your word. Uh, teach us from it by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John 4, starting in verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Is God distant? Is he out of touch with your real needs? Is he unable to relate to you in your suffering and your trials? If you have not gone through serious trials, it may be easy to answer no to these questions. But the greater your sin and the greater your suffering the greater than temptation to answer, yes, God is out of touch. 
How could God possibly understand what I am going through? He, he sits in heaven removed from our day-to-day lives, knowing nothing of what we experience. He couldn't possibly relate to someone with my past. Surely he is distant from someone with my sin. There is no way he could relate to someone with my struggles. When we come to the story of the Samaritan woman, people often focus on the woman, and and rightly so. She is a character in this story. She has some some depth, some nuance to her. She contrasts well with the last person Jesus talked to, Nicodemus. He was a man of the Jewish religious elite. She is a woman of Samaria of questionable religious heritage. He came to Jesus at night, perhaps not wanting to lose his reputation. We meet the Samaritan woman at noon because she has a reputation. Nicodemus approaches Jesus, but Jesus approaches this woman. Nicodemus is named. She remains nameless. They they couldn't be more different, and of course, that is purposeful. But this story is no more about her than the previous story was about Nicodemus. Do you remember why John is writing his gospel? John 20, 31, it says, These things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. As we talked about last week, John is telling us the story of Jesus. He wants us to see the the beauty of this man, to be in awe of his power, to marvel at his wisdom, and to be wooed by his love. John wants us to see Jesus that we might believe, and by believing, have life in his name. The story of the Samaritan woman is a story of a woman coming to faith, and the lights are turning on as we read through the story. But even more, it is about Jesus slowly being revealed. And the main application of the text of John 4, and and so the main application of our sermon, is just to see Jesus in all of his beauty, to see him for who he is, to come to him if you have not yet done so, and to worship him even if you have done so a thousand times before. And what we will see that will draw us there is that God is not distant and out of touch, but sympathetic and drawing near. And so see Jesus. We'll see Jesus that he sympathizes with our every weakness, that he crosses every barrier, and that he satisfies every thirsty heart. First, see Jesus that he sympathizes with our every weakness. Sympathy should be easy for you and I. Uh, We are weak, tempted, mortal, and sinful. We are limited in time and ability and maturity and energy. It is absurd for us to look at another human being and think, if only they were more like me, then they'd have it all together. When we say things like, I can't believe you would do something so stupid, or I don't understand why anyone would say such a thing, or I can't imagine why someone would live like that, that is a failure of sympathy and a lack of imagination. Uh, Those statements say, I'm not so stupid. I'm not so sinful. I'm not such a failure. And I'm so far above you, I can't even grasp how you got so low. As weak and tempted and sinful, as limited as we are, we are often not very sympathetic to others who are weak and tempted and sinful and limited. God intrinsically is none of those things. He is not weak. 
He cannot be tempted. He has no sin. He has no limits. Now, if you're listening carefully, you might say, well, if God cannot be tempted and he cannot sin, isn't that a limit? Uh, Okay, Uh, if we want to get technical, we can say this. God's power is only limited by the strength of his own character. Or as the children's catechism puts it, God can do all his holy will. God has no material limits. Uh, he, He does have moral limits, but not from external rules, but from the internal holiness of his own character. But that really only furthers the point, doesn't it? How can a God, only limited by the standard of his own holiness and nothing else, how can he sympathize with us? Now, one good answer to that is, uh, well, if he truly has no limits, then there is no limit to his sympathy either, and that's true. But there's another answer. Uh, John told us in John 1.18 that no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus came to make the Father known. How do we know that divinity can sympathize with humanity? Jesus came to make the Father known. And he came sympathizing with sinners and sufferers. John 4 is really a fascinating story. And we're going to look at it over three weeks. uh, Well, the story of the Samaritan woman at least over three weeks. And we still won't have plumbed the depths of this story. In the beginning of the story, Jesus, uh, learning that the Pharisees have been checking up on his ministry, he decides to leave Judea for Galilee. Judea was the region of Israel around Jerusalem. Galilee was to the north, away from the jealous eyes of the religious elite. Verse 4 tells us that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. And that is, strictly speaking, not true. Many Jews went around Samaria, uh, It's a little like saying, though, uh, you you have to go through campus to get from Urbana to Champaign. Uh, Yes, if you go straight through, but you can always go around. You can avoid campus if you want to. And again, many Jews went around Samaria. They avoided it whenever possible. For that reason, many have read into this had to. And for good reason, Jesus often, or John, in John's gospel, often uses this word to express some kind of divine necessity. Uh, John 3, 7, Jesus says, you must be born again. Same word, must be born again. John three fourteen, Jesus says, the Son of Man must be lifted up. John three thirty, John the Baptist says, Jesus must increase. John four twenty four, Jesus will say, we must worship God in spirit and truth. And in John 20, verse 9, John will say that the scriptures teach that Jesus must rise from the dead. Uh, The word doesn't have to be theologically loaded, but it often is, especially in the Gospel of John. And since there was no geographical necessity here, perhaps there was some providential necessity. So Jesus had to pass through Samaria because he wanted to meet this woman at this well at this time. And if one says, as if, as if one were to say, well, I have to stop at the store on the way home, the store where my wife works, because uh, she's getting off work and I want to pick her up. It's a necessity that comes out of Jesus' own desire to meet with the Samaritan woman. And so he comes to this town called Sychar, near a field that Jacob gave to Joseph. Uh, the field includes a well just outside of town. And Jesus, wearied as he was 
from his journey sat beside the well about noon. Now, some have said that if you really want to get the divinity of Jesus, read the Gospel of John, and that's true. But we could also say if you really want to get the incarnation, read the Gospel of John, because nowhere do we see more clearly both the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. Here we see Jesus weary, he was tired, he needed rest. The Son of God needed. How can we say such a thing? Because God became man without ceasing to be God in Jesus. And so he, with respect to his humanity, was tired. Why do that? Why why become a man? Why invite weariness? Because, according to Philippians 2.4, he looked not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. And so he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. God sympathized with man in our weakness. And so he sent his son to enter into that weakness, to know what it is like to to get to the end of a long day, to just need to put your feet up for a minute, to bake in the hot sun, to know heat and fatigue and thirst. You see, Jesus, Jesus not only needed rest, he needed water. A Samaritan woman comes to the well to draw water, and Jesus says, give me a drink. Now, before we jump into the fascinating discussion which follows, just pause there for a minute. Imagine what is happening. The Son of God has a need. He is thirsty, and he asks one of his creatures for a drink. He designed her. He foreknew her. He created her, and he now needs her to give him a drink. In fact, the practical, physical need is emphasized later when she says, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Jesus has not. He lacks something. And let the weight of the full humanity of Jesus impress itself upon you for a moment. The one who said, uh, the one who in that same moment was sitting in heaven being adored by angels was asking this woman for a drink. God became man to sympathize with us in our weakness. Hebrews 2.14 puts it like this. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Verse 17 goes on to say, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. And later in Hebrews it draws this conclusion in chapter 4 verse 15. It says, For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus partook of flesh and blood. He was made like us in every respect. He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now here, of course, in John 4, it is weariness and thirst. And some of you can probably sympathize with that. All right, life is busy. That's the adjective of our age. Life is hard and exhausting. You are tired and weary Jesus understands. He he gets it. He has been there. He is not unable to sympathize with your weakness, which is to say he is sympathetic, right? He gets you. But of course, his life won't end there. His life will be full of trouble. He is a man of sorrows. His family said he was crazy. His enemies tried to trap him, and then he will enter his Passion Week. 
He will be betrayed and abandoned by his friends. He will be falsely accused, arrested by his enemies. He will be convicted of trumped-up charges. He will be beaten and mocked and stripped and shamed and nailed to a cross and mocked some more until he finally dies and is buried. Whatever you are going through, however bad it is, whatever trouble you know, Jesus can sympathize. God has walked a mile in your shoes. He knows what it's like to be you and to be me. So look at Jesus, the one who sympathizes with our weakness. He hasn't forgotten what it's like. Second, see Jesus who crosses every barrier. How far would you go for someone you loved? That question could be taken literally, like how far would you travel or it could be metaphorical, right? What, what would you be willing to go through for someone you loved? Often the lengths to which you would go show the depth of your love. What we see in this story is that Jesus is crossing every barrier to reach this woman. And there are at least five barriers in this text. There's an ethnic barrier, there's a gender barrier, there's a religious barrier, there's a moral barrier, and there's the barrier of social and cultural custom. The Samaritan woman picks up on this right away when she says in verse 9, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Jesus is going against social social custom and convention here. He's talking to a woman, not his wife, in public. More than that, he's talking to a Samaritan woman. The Jews and the Samaritans hated one another for hundreds of years at this point. When the northern kingdom of Israel was exiled in 722 B.C., it's quite a long time ago, even from that point, uh, the, the Assyrians resettled other peoples in Samaria, and these settlers mixed the religion of Israel with their own native paganism. So that in, in 2 Kings 17.33, we're told of these people, of the Samaritans, that they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of nations from among whom they had been carried away. See, they, they distorted the religion of Yahweh, and the Jewish people hated them for it. Over time, the animosity became mutual. But here comes Jesus, refusing to cater to racism or sexism, and he, he, he seems almost oblivious to the barriers right, that he's breaking down. He acts as if they don't even exist. He doesn't make a show of things. He doesn't draw attention to himself. He simply asks for a drink. And you can imagine the woman's jaw drop. Wait, what? You want a drink from me? And and given this woman's history, she may even understand, misunderstand Jesus' intention. You know, wells in the Bible are like the Old Testament equivalent of an online dating site. Right? Isaac's wife, Rebecca, was met at a well when she was asked for a drink. Jacob met his wife, Rachel, at a well. Moses met his wife again at a well when he gave water to her and her flocks. And this actually may be one reason that Jesus instructs the woman to go get her husband to clarify his intentions, which also allows him to show that he is crossing the moral barrier as well, which is to say he knows what kind of woman this is. He says in verse 16, go call your husband and come here. Now, the problem is this woman isn't married. She has been married five times, but now she's shacked up with a guy who is not her husband. 
And that explains actually why she is here at the well alone. Uh, Most people think that if John is reckoning time according to Jewish norms, that they are there at noon, the hottest time of the day. Why walk a half mile to the well at noon when you could come and go earlier or later in the cool of the day? Because she doesn't want to see the other women. She, she she, She wants to avoid them. She wants to avoid their gossip. She wants to avoid their snubbing. She wants to avoid their shame. And at least this Jewish man is a stranger. He doesn't know her sordid past or her sinful present. Except he's Jesus, and he does. Jesus knows exactly who he is talking to. He knows that she's a woman. He knows that she's a Samaritan. He knows that she's a sinner. But he had come here to meet her, to approach her, to ask her for a drink. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He came not for the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. And he is determined to cross any barrier to save lost sinners. And yet the first barrier that he crossed was not ethnicity or gender or religion, right? The first barrier that he crossed was the the most fundamental one, the one that confounds philosophers and theologians. God became man. The creator became a creature that he might dwell with creatures and meet with creatures. The eternal son became a Jewish carpenter that he might ask a Samaritan woman for a drink. And of course, the incarnation alone does not save There was no barrier to fellowship in the garden when God first created man. They experienced perfect fellowship, perfect communion before sin entered the picture. The great barrier to God's dwelling with man was not the creator-creature distinction, but human rebellion. Sin is humanity rejecting God as God. All sin is a rejection of God. You, You cannot have communion with someone when you are rejecting them. You cannot enjoy someone when you are holding them at arm's length. Sin is the great barrier, but Jesus deals with this barrier as well, not by sinning, but by standing in the place of sinners. Jesus comes to represent us in our sin to the Father. He comes to bear our punishment, to experience the break of relationship. On the cross, shortly after Jesus cried out, my, I thirst, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was a moment of pain of confusion, of loss, right? Jesus was abandoned by his father in that moment. He was abandoned for us. He stands in the gap. He becomes the bridge so that our sin would no longer keep us from the father, but through Jesus, we can now draw near. Do you think that God holds you at arm's length? There is nothing, nothing, no barrier God will not cross for those who will look to Jesus. Jesus has crossed the barriers. He has come near. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, have life in his name. That's what John wants us to see and do. And so see Jesus. He sympathizes with our weakness. He crosses every barrier. He breaks down every division. And finally, he satisfies every thirsty heart. The woman is shocked that Jesus asks her for a drink. And the conversation goes on from there like this in verses 10 through 15. She says, I'm amazed that you would ask. And Jesus says, if, if you only knew what was going on, you would ask me. And, and yet most of, us are, are, most of us are materialists at heart, right? We, we think about this present age. We think about the needs of the flesh. But Jesus is gently nudging this woman to think deeper. There is something more important than water. There is living water. 
Now, now, living water, that phrase in that day, it could simply refer to running water, right? A stream instead of a stagnant pool. Living water was safe, right? Stagnant pool, things grew in that. You don't know what's in there. But that's not what Jesus means. And she doesn't get it. She, she misses it. She asks, where do you plan to get this living water? You don't have a bucket, right? Are you greater than our father Jacob? The fact that the Samaritans had Jacob's well, right, was a, was a point of pride. This, this was a piece of their shared history. Jacob was no minor figure, right? He was later named Israel, and they, they, they had his well. The Samaritans had his well. And her challenge was obvious, right? Of course he wasn't greater than our father Jacob. Who was? Of course, Jesus was. Sure, Jacob had dug a well. He gave them water to drink, but Jesus offered a different kind of water altogether, water for the thirsty soul. He says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Water that becomes a spring that wells up to eternal life. Now, the woman doesn't get it. In verse 14, she says, great, sounds good. Give me this water that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Give me this water so I don't have to keep coming back to the well. Like Nicodemus, who wonders how someone can enter into his mother's womb and be born a second time, she is still thinking according to the flesh. Her imagination is limited to this physical world. Maybe this guy does have some kind of magic water that would quench the thirst of my body. If so, I want it, right? Sign me up. But Jesus has something better. In the Hebrew scriptures, thirst was a metaphor for spiritual longing. Psalm 42, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? The psalmist thirsts for God. He longs for God's presence. He, he, if only I could come before God, my soul's thirst would be quenched. The problem of sin is explained as seeking to satisfy that thirst in the wrong place in Jeremiah 2. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. See, we have a thirst that only God can quench, but we pursue other things in this life for satisfaction, for understanding, for a sense of self, for meaning, for joy, for purpose, for hope. But everything else is a broken cistern that can hold no water. We keep looking for things in this life to satisfy, but we end up parched, thirsty, weary, and longing. We keep looking for things in this life to satisfy. And so God, in his infinite humility, steps into this life. Jesus comes in the flesh. He crosses the barrier from heaven to earth. He comes to satisfy our thirst. He comes to give his spirit who brings the the benefits of Jesus' sympathizing, barrier-crossing work, and who in us becomes a a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Are you thirsty? Where do you look to satisfy that thirst? What wells are you drinking from? What broken cisterns do you go back to again and again? Do you know that this life cannot satisfy Do you realize whether you have much or little, this life cannot quench the thirst within? You were made for something more. 
You know, if, if you, if you, you, you've probably heard this before, right? If you're ever stranded at sea, don't drink the salt water, right? Because if you drink salt water, you will eventually thirst to death. The more you try to drink of this age, the more you try to satisfy your soul with what this age offers, the thirstier your soul will become. And if you never find the fountain of living water, your soul will dry up and shrivel like a prune. Jesus is water for the soul. He comes to bring life. He enters us by his spirit so that we not only drink and are satisfied, but he being in us by his spirit continually refreshes us. That's the promise of Jesus. Come to me and I will satisfy your soul, Jesus says. Come to me and I will sustain you in the wilderness of this world. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to Jesus, the living water. Do you see Jesus? He sympathizes with our weakness. He crosses every barrier. He satisfies every thirst. Now, I want to add an epilogue here. When we, when we see Jesus, we, we come to him. We draw near and we drink. But then we must go. Uh, Jesus told the Samaritan woman, go call your husband. And we will see her later in the story, go and call her village. We too are commanded to go. How do we do that? What does that look like? How do we go? We do it just as Jesus does it here. At the end of John, Jesus will say, As the Father sent me, so I send you. In other Gospels, Jesus says, Take up your cross and follow me. So how do we go? We go in the manner of Jesus. First, we go as needy people, being honest about our weakness. This story begins with Jesus being weary and asking for a drink. We, we, we don't go forth in our strength. We go out in weakness, sympathizing with sinners and sufferers. Second, we go crossing every barrier, refusing to avoid people because of social custom or convention. Remember, Jesus, he was not concerned about appearances. He, the sinless one, ate with gluttons and drank with drunkards and got a reputation as a result. We go knowing that in Christ there is no Jew or Greek, male or female, Republican or Democrat, Ukrainian or Russian. But by his death, Jesus tears down every barrier. We are all forgiven by faith in him. And so we proclaim the death of Jesus to one and all, never looking down on, never thinking ourselves better than, never standing far off from, but drawing near to all because of Jesus. We go being honest about our weakness. We go crossing every barrier. Third, we go meeting needs. We go serving others. We go loving as we have been loved. We go seeking to satisfy needs in order to point to the only one who can satisfy souls. And so we go offering living water, pointing people to the Savior, telling them of Jesus the Christ, the Savior of the world, the one who sympathizes with us, who knows us to our core, who will will let nothing get in his way to save his people and satisfy our souls. Come to Jesus and then go and tell of Jesus to a thirsty world. Let's pray. Our Father, help us to see Jesus more and more. Help us to drink deeply from the living water that he offers. Help us to drink and be satisfied. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.